0: For some, the final book in the Bible, Revelation, reads like a science fiction novel. Without context, a reader can get lost in the many references to strange creatures that are engaged in battle. Today, on Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll continues a study in the book of Revelation. In fact, we're just getting started. And at the outset, Chuck provides a helpful summary of the entire book before we dig in verse by verse. In the event that you missed any portion of our previous program, we'll begin with highlights. Chuck titled his first message, The Apocalypse in Panorama.
1: Now let's move to some foundational information that will give us an understanding, a better understanding of the book. First of all, the title of the book. The title is taken directly from the first line of the first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ. When we get our word apocalypse in the English language, it conveys the idea of an imminent cosmic cataclysm. The ultimate disaster and final doom of something. But that's not the meaning in its original Greek. Apocalypse means unveiling, disclosing. Something that has been hidden or not known is now made visible. God's desire is that we understand the future as best we can. Remember the words, and put it in the margin of your notes, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Paul says, I would not want any of you to be uninformed concerning those who are asleep. By that, he means those who have died. And then he goes on to describe the future of those who have passed from this earth. But the point is, I don't want you to be ignorant. There is nothing spiritual about ignorance if knowledge is available. There is something wonderful about admitting one's ignorance if no one could know by investigation. But if the truth is set forth, God's desire is that we go to the to the trouble, if you will, of informing ourselves because when it comes to the future, we gain confidence for the present if we know where we're going. And God doesn't suddenly desire to confuse us having made the previous truth clear. Secondly, the writer of the book, We're told of him in verse 1. It's communicated by the angel to the bondservant, John. He's mentioned in verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And in verse 9, with the first person singular, I, John. So he's literally writing the book. He gave us the gospel to give us something to believe. He gave us the three letters to help us be certain. He gives us the revelation to make us ready. So John, when he comes to this last book of the Bible, his final message in writing writes unlike he wrote in the Gospels or in the letters. What do we know of John? Well, look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. Uh, Before we go to where he was, let me remind you that John has been placed there because of a ruler who was vicious in his treatment of Christians. Domitian was far worse than Nero, he reigned from 81 to 96, A.D. 81 to 96. Probably the letter is or the book is written toward the end of that time, 94, 95, 96. John having been exiled to the island to be silenced. John had been ministering at Ephesus, and Domitian, hoping to silence the impact of his message, felt that he belonged exiled, and he put him at a place of a Roman penal colony on the island of Patmos, tiny little six-mile-by-ten-miles-long island in the South Aegean Sea. Early church fathers such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Eusebius state that John was sent to this island as an, exile, as an exile under the ruler Domitian. According to Victorianists, John, though aged, was forced to labor in the mines located at Patmos. Early sources indicate that at about 96, at Domitian's death, John was allowed to return to Ephesus when the emperor Nerva was in power. Nerva succeeded Domitian on the throne of the Roman Empire and apparently was soft toward those of the faith, or at least softer than Domitian, and John returned to his homeland of Asia. And in the solace and solitude and perhaps even in the pain and torment of his exile, the Lord appears to him and reveals to him what he was to write. And and we leave it. We leave it at that. A third I would mention, along with the title and the writer of the book, I would mention the blessing of the book. It's unusual. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near you'll find a similar statement at the very end of the book in 22 7. Behold I am coming quickly blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So they're like bookends. There are blessing bookends on this revelation that has been preserved for us. You will be blessed by hearing and reading and heeding. You will be blessed in heeding the truth of John is told to do three things. One, write the things which you have seen. Second, the things which are. And third, the things which will take place after these things. Now, let's let it say what it says. John is told to write. And he is told the categories in which he is to do the writing. Write the things that you see. That's chapter 1. He sees this one who comes dressed in this way. Uh, he, he sees the details of his appearance. And he sees, as we will discover, the Lord Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, I, I, I think it 's wonderful, by the way, and none of my sources mention this. John walked with him for those three years and more as a disciple, but when he encounters him here, he doesn 't know him because he never saw him in this in this uh, blazing glory of his glorified state that is not as he was in heaven, revealing himself and, and he 's introduced to him as the one who was the beginning and the ending, the alpha and the omega and Seeing these things, he's to write them down. And So John, no doubt after the ecstasy of the vision, where he is lifted beyond the consciousness of this earth and caught up in the spiritual awareness of God's revealing himself, he writes down the things that he sees. That's chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven churches that were named for us in verse 11 of chapter 1. Those are the things that are. How helpful that is. These are the things that are going on right now in these seven churches. If you turn too quickly from the map then you overlooked inland, the seven churches that make sort of a circle. Cynthia and I have visited the sites that are still identified as places uh, to this day as those original spots. Some of them uh, are now obscure. No one can say for sure where some of them are, but... In the first century, they were all extant. Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, then down to Sardis and Philadelphia and finally Laodicea. In every one of these churches, there are, there are strengths. And in all but one of them, there are blazing and, and obvious weaknesses that the Lord uh, reveals and You're to write those things that are. And these messengers are to take these messages and read them to the churches so they will know. By the way, just as an aside, wouldn't it be interesting if the Lord were to give this messenger the message concerning Stonebriar Community Church? Wouldn't you like it? Maybe you wouldn't. But wouldn't it be interesting if I came on a given Sunday and said, I've, I've just encounter the Lord, and he has given me his message for us. Do you think you would be on the edge of your seat? Well, uh, probably not, because I would be weird uh, getting a message from a vision. But in those days, it wasn't weird. That's how God revealed his truth. And they must have sat on the edge of their seats, listening to his evaluation. It is the Lord Jesus' evaluation of local churches in that first century. Those are the things which are. There's the third category, and that's what keeps us busy and, and often gets us in trouble, and that's chapters 4 through 22, where we write of the things which shall be hereafter, the things which follow. By the way, look at chapter 4 in verse 1. I found this this week and, and thought it was very interesting. After these things, remember the line? Chapter 1, verse 19. The things which will take place after these things. one starts with those very words. After these things, I looked and behold, a door. Now, stop. John, in this remarkable supernatural moment of time, is taken up from this earth in this vision, and he is seeing the peaks of the future. He is witnessing things in heaven, chapters 4 and 5 judgments on earth 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation and he witnesses all of it in fact at that moment as they are unfolding and these are the things that will come after our time not mentioned here but would give some sense of peace to all of you who know the Lord Jesus and no peace to you who do not that we who know Christ are taken up from this earth and brought into the Lord's presence to be with him forever before the events of the judgments unfold. And the events on this earth hit with full force and greater intensity as these things begin to come to pass. And John writes them. I imagine he wrote with uh, uh, some sense of uh, passion as he put down one thing after another after another as he saw the events transpiring. So that's an outline for the book, and I'll frequently refer to it. 119, the things you've seen, chapter 1, things that are, 2 and 3, and the things that will come after, 4 through 22. Meryl Tenney writes, The seer of revelation under the power of the Holy Spirit was transported in consciousness to a new scene of action where spiritual realities and future events were disclosed to him and where he received revelations that were not given under ordinary circumstances. When God gave his truth to human beings, it was a supernatural event and it was watched over by the Holy Spirit so that the transmission of it into writing was miraculously preserved without error. As the Lord spoke or revealed ex cathedra, so the writers of scripture wrote ex cathedra without error. Exactly what it is God wanted written. And John did that faithfully from the beginning to the end of the Revelation. By the way, four times it says in Revelation that he is taken up in the Spirit. Uh, One is while he was on the island of Patmos. Another, he is in heaven. Third, he is in a wilderness. And the fourth scene, he is in a great and high mountain. Uh, Just a few closing words as we sort of unfold the book. There's a prologue in the first eight verses So if you're a type of person that really likes to get it down to the gnat's whisker, uh, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1 is a prologue. Chapter 1, verse 9, to the end of that chapter, 9 through 20 would be the things John saw. And here is a revelation of the person of Christ. And then two and three would be the things which are, that would be the messages to the seven churches. Now listen carefully. When you get to the fourth chapter, you come to a time of enormous pain and anguish on this earth. It is a time of, scripture calls it, tribulation. Flipsis is the word. It's the idea of pressure, anxiety. Uh, anguish, and it grows in intensity, get it, from seven seals to seven trumpets to seven bowls. The seals are broken, and each one represents another anxiety, another anguishing experience. And the seventh seal opens the first of the seven trumpets. And those six trumpets are sounded, and each one represents a crescendo of painful, anguishing events that occur on this earth. And when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the first of the seven bowls, called the plagues, are opened and poured out. So there are seals broken, trumpets sounding, and, and bowls pouring out. The, the anguish upon this earth that climaxes at the final great battle of Armageddon. Uh, if you will turn to chapter 19, how's that for a quick skate? From 4 to 19. When you get to 19, you come to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who steps onto this earth's scene, sounding the, if you will, the final death knell on the Antichrist and the false prophet who are thrown into a place of an abyss called the Lake of Fire. And Satan is bound for a thousand-year period of time, chapter 20, and the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ, fulfilling promises to the Jews given way back in ancient times, now are being fulfilled where Christ rules and we rule and reign with Him. What a wonderful privileged position will be ours. Satan is bound, the false prophet and the Antichrist are cast aside so as to no longer give influence, and there is the unrolling of peace like the world has never known, even the kind of peace described by some of the minor prophets. And all of that being fulfilled, Satan is loosed briefly. A few follow him. I should say many follow him. And they, along with the final enemy adversary himself, as well as death, are cast into the lake of fire. And that opens chapter 21 to the end, chapter 22, the eternal state. The final place of rest and reward Of those who claimed the name of Christ. There is an epilogue, again, for you who care about those kind of details, in 22, 6 to 21. The prologue is 1, 1 to 8. The epilogue is 22, 6 to 21, where John wraps it up. What a journey we have in front of us. Uh, You have my word. I I will do uh, my part (laughs) And I will expect you to do yours. Uh, You pray that the idiot's book on Revelation will not impact me too severely. You pray that I will let the word of God speak so that I can then represent truth for you. You pray that your own heart will be open to what may seem to you to be a stretch to believe. Again, you're pushing the parameters of the familiar back out of sight. And you are invading a world that is not familiar, that is full of unusual events, the likes of which this world has never known. Let me leave with you uh, three simple and very practical lessons. Can I do that? First, God's Word is a reliable map to take us through all of life's storms. God's word is a reliable map to take us through all of life's storms. And second, especially as it relates to revelation, God's plan is a sovereign arrangement of events that replaces fear with hope. His plan is a sovereign arrangement of events that when you understand them, we'll replace fear with hope and we'll replace superstition with truth. Some of the most tragic people on the face of the earth are those who live under the superstition of a horoscope or palm reading or tarot cards or some means of connecting with the dead. Uh, This will take away all of that necessity in your life, all of that, all of that curiosity, and will rivet you to truth that you can live by. Third, God's son is the glorious Lord worthy of our allegiance. And you know what you can put just comes to mind? (laughs) He has the last word. (laughs) We got some pretty persuasive voices. We've got some pretty charismatic kind of leaders around this world. We've got some folks that can really get a following, and there will be more. In fact, the most is yet to come, as we shall see. But the wonderful truth is that the glorious Lord Jesus Christ will stand in his glory, and we who serve him will realize he has the last word, and in the end, he wins. I'm going to tell you that. It takes away some of the mystery, but you knew it anyway. It's a good story because good does triumph over evil. May we bow together. Perhaps you've never met the Lord Jesus Christ and you've come out of a sense of curiosity or you may come back with curiosity. And I need to tell you that a lot of this will fall by the wayside without the Lord Jesus alive in your life. I invite you now in the quietness of these closing moments to just turn your life over to him. Release the anxieties, the flipsies of your life, the tribulations, the trials, the struggles, the unanswered qualms and questions. And in return, he will give you not only his forgiveness, but direction and truth to live by. What a pleasure it is to introduce you to the one with whom you will reign and rule and serve. As you pass from death to life, you will move from time to eternity with him, and you will know a peace that can never be described on this earth. You have nothing to fear when you know Christ. Lord God, we are grateful for your word that lives and abides forever. Heaven and earth will pass away as we know it, but your word will never pass away nor will the souls of women and men, boys and girls. They are the eternal part of us. I pray that you will bring us to account, our Father, show us the value of the life of faith and trust and confidence. Reveal to us in this study that the spiritual realm is even more real than the temporal, that the eternal is more important than what goes on in time. In showing us that, may you change our values so that they began to be reflected in the way we live and how we live, the way we invest our time and our money, the things we do with our lives. Thank you, Father. Guide us into all truth as we begin this study together. I ask it in the name of Jesus our magnificent, glorious, conquering Lord and Savior. Everyone said, Amen.
0: With his closing prayer, Chuck Swindoll concludes the very first message in our comprehensive study of Revelation. The series, broken up into three acts, is called Unveiling the End. To learn more about this ministry, visit us online at insightworld.org. You know, whenever we begin a new series, i like to remind you that Insight for Living offers a variety of resources that are intentionally designed to enhance your personal study. For instance, Chuck has written a book on Revelation. It's called Chuck Swindoll's Living Insights on Revelation. This isn't a book that parallels the teaching series. It's actually a commentary written in classic Swindoll style. Chuck provides historical context on the book of Revelation, and he offers all kinds of practical application for life today. To purchase Chuck Swindoll's Living Insights on Revelation, go to insight.org store. Well, many in our listening family enjoy owning Chuck's messages, and I'm pleased to say that Act 1 of this series called Unveiling the End is available for purchase. To secure the complete collection, give us a call. If you're listening in the United States, call 800-772-8888. Or you can purchase the 12-part series online at insight.org slash store. This daily program is made possible through voluntary donations from grateful listeners just like you. If God is prompting you to support this ministry, visit us online at insight.org slash donate. To simplify the process and to automate your gifts, we invite you to become a monthly companion. In this relationship, your investment has 12 times the impact over the course of one year. And I'll add this, our monthly companions have become a stabilizing force for this ministry, and they're responsible for millions around the world who've gained access to Chuck's Bible teaching. To join the team right now, give us a call. If you're listening in the United States, call 800-772-8888 or go online to insight.org slash monthly companion. I'm Bill Meyer, inviting you to join us next time when Chuck Swindoll continues his study in Revelation called Unveiling the End on Insight for Living. The preceding message, The Apocalypse in Panorama, was copyrighted in 2003 2006 and 2024, and the sound recording was copyrighted in 2024 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide. Duplication of copyrighted material for commercial use is strictly prohibited.